Chapter Two of The Mary Ann. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Betsy Bush, November 2009. The Mary Ann by Samuel Merwin. Chapter Two The New Mate. In the morning, the William Schmidt, Henry Smiley Master, came in from Chicago and tied up across the pier from the Mary Ann. Henry, Dick's cousin, was a short, stocky man, said to be somewhat of a driver with his sailors. He seldom had much to say, never drank, was shrewd at a bargain, and was supposed to have a considerable sum stowed away in the local savings bank. Though he was wanting in the qualities that made his younger cousin popular, he was daring enough in his quiet way, and he had been known, when he thought the occasion justified it, to run long chances with his snub-nosed schooner. After breakfast, Dick walked across the broad pier between the piles of lumber and found Henry in his cabin. They greeted each other cordially. "'Sit down,' said Henry. "'Did you come down through that Norwester?' Dick nodded. "'Have any trouble?' "'Oh, no. Lost some sleep, that's all.' You aren't going down to the yards today, are you? Yes, I think likely. Why? I'll go along with you. I'm ready to make another payment on the schooner. I've been thinking it over, and it strikes me I'm paying about three times what she's worth. What do you think? Would it do any harm to have a little talk about it with the captain? You know him better than I do. Henry shook his head. I wouldn't. He is too smart for you. He will beat you any way you try it, and have you thanking him before he is through with you. I have gone all over this ground before, you know. Of course, he is an old rascal, but I don't know of any other way you could even get an interest in a schooner. You see, you haven't any capital. He will give you all the time you want, and I don't know but what he's entitled to a little extra, everything considered. But don't say anything, whatever you do. You've got too good a thing there. "'You think I ought to just shut up and let him bleed me?' "'He isn't bleeding you. Just think it over, Dick. "'You are making a living, and you already have a quarter interest in your schooner. "'You couldn't ask much more at your age. "'Have you heard from him yet, by the way?' "'No. "'He spoke to me the other day about wanting to see you when you came in. "'There's another order to come down from Spencer.' "'Where's that?' "'Up in the Alpena country.' Lake Huron, eh? Oh, isn't that where you were in the spring? Yes, I've been there. An old fellow named Spencer runs a little one-horse mill, and he's selling timber and shingles. And from what the captain said, I don't think he'd care if you brought along a little venture of your own. That's the way I used to do it when I was paying for the Schmidt. How could I do that? Spencer will give you a little credit. You can stow away a few thousand feet and clear twenty or thirty dollars. It helps along. All right, I'll try it. Are you sure the old man won't care? Oh, yes. He's willing enough to do the square thing, so long as it keeps us feeling good and doesn't lose him anything. Say, there's another thing, Henry. I fired Roke up at Manistee. Fired him? Henry's brows came together. Yes, I had to. I had stood him as long as I could. I don't know what the captain will say about that. I'd like to know what he can say. I was in command. Yes, I know. Of course you had a right to. 
but the thing is to keep on his good side. Suppose we go right down to the yards and see if you can get your story in before Rokes. What does the captain care about my men, I'd like to know? Now keep your cool, Dick. Roke, you see, used to work for him. I don't know but what they're related, and it was because the captain spoke to me about him that I recommended him to you when I did. And look here, Dick. Henry smiled as he laid a hand on his cousin's shoulder. I'm a good deal older than you are, and you can take my word for it. Don't get sour on things. Of course people will do you if they can, but it's human nature, and you can't change it by growling about it. You are doing well, and what you need now is to keep your eyes open and your mouth shut. Why should you want to hurry things along? A flush came over Dick's face. There's a reason all right enough. You see, Henry, there's a little girl not so very many miles from here. Oh, ho, thought Henry, a little girl. But his face was immobile, excepting a momentary curious expression that passed over it. Now, don't get to thinking it's all fixed up, because it isn't, not yet. But you see, I've been thinking that when I've got a little something to offer... There's another thing you can take my word for, my boy, said Henry with a dry smile. Don't get impetuous. Marrying may be all right, but it wants to be done careful. Captain Stensenberger's lumber yard was a few miles away at the Chicago city limits. As the two sailors left the pier to walk up to the railway station, Dick was glad to change the subject for the first one that came into his head. "'What do you suppose the foot has been doing here this week, Dick? I heard she put in Tuesday or Wednesday.' "'Looking for Whiskey Jim, I suppose.' "'Oh, are they on that track again?' "'Haven't you seen the papers?' "'No, not for more than a week.' "'Well, it's quite a yarn.' From what has been said, I rather guess it's the liquor dealers that are stirring it up this time. There is a story around that he has been counterfeiting the Red Seal label on their bottles. I think they're all off the track, though. Anybody could tell them that there's no such man. Every time a case of smuggling comes up, the papers talk about Whiskey Jim, no matter if it's up at the Straits or down on the St. Lawrence. But what's the trouble now? Oh, they're saying that this fellow was a rich man that has a big smuggling system with agents all around the lakes and dealers in the cities that are in his pay. Sort of a smuggling trust. Sounds like a fairy story. That's about what it is. The regular dealers have taken up the fight to protect their trade, and one of the papers in particular have put reporters on the case, and all that sort of thing. And as usual, they're announcing just what they've done and what they're going to do. The old foot is to make a tour of the lakes and look into every port. And if there is any whiskey, Jim, I'll bet he's somewhere over in Canada by this time, reading the papers and laughing at him. Captain Stensenberger was seated in his swivel chair in his dingy little one-story office at the corner of the lumber yard. His broad frame was overloaded with flesh. His paunch seemed almost to rest on his thighs as he sat there, chewing an unlighted cigar in the corner of his mouth a corner that had been molded around the cigar by long habit and that looked incomplete when the cigar was not there. His fat neck, the fatter for a large goiter, was wider than his cheeks, and these again were wider than his forehead, so that his head seemed to taper off from his shoulders. A cropped mustache, a tanned wrinkled face and forehead, and bright brown eyes completed the picture, 
When his two captains came in, he rested his pudgy hands on the arms of his chair, readjusted his lips around the cigar, and nodded. "'How are you, boys?' said he, in a husky voice. "'Have a good trip?' This last remark was addressed to Dick. First part was bad, but it cleared up later. "'Did you put right out into that storm from Manistee?' "'Yes. You see, I had the wind behind me all the way down. Got to get a new small boat, though.' The captain did not press the subject. In return for the privilege of buying the schooner by installments, he permitted Dick to pay for the insurance, so the young man could be as reckless as he liked. Dick now explained that he had come to make a payment, and the transaction was accomplished. "'Step over and have a drink, boys,' was the next formality, and the two stood aside while Stenzenberger got his unwieldy body out of the chair, put on his hat, and led the way out. Adjoining the lumber yard on the west was a small frame building bearing the sign, The Teamster's Friend. It had been set down here presumably to catch the trade of the market gardeners, who rumbled through in the small hours of every morning. In the rear, backed up against a lumber pile, was a long shed where the teams could wait under cover while their drivers were carousing within. A second sign, painted on the end of this shed, announced that Murphy and McGlory were the proprietors of the sample room and summer garden. The three men entered and seated themselves at a table. There was no one behind the bar at the moment, but soon a woman glanced in through the rear doorway. Stenzenberger smiled broadly on her and winked. "'How do you do, Madge?' he said. "'Can't you give us a little something with a smile in it? One of your smiles, maybe, now?' She was a tall woman, with a full figure and snapping eyes, attractive in spite of a crow's-foot wrinkle or so. She returned the smile warily and said, "'I'll call Joe, Mr. Stenzenberger.' "'You needn't do that now, Madge. Draw it with those pretty hands of yours.' "'There's a dear.' So she came in behind the bar, wiping her hands on her apron, and quietly awaited their orders. "'What'll it be, boys?' Dick suggested a glass of beer, but Henry smiled and shook his head. "'You might make it a ginger ale for me.' "'I don't know what to do with that cousin of yours,' said Stenzenberger to Dick. "'He's a queer one. I don't like to trust a man that's got no vices.' "'What are your vices, anyhow, Smiley?' Henry smiled again. "'Ask Dick there. He ought to know all about me.' Stenzenberger looked from one to the other. Then he raised his foaming glass, and with a prowset and a stiff German nod, he put it down at a gulp. "'Been reading about the revenue case?' Henry asked of his superior. "'I saw something this morning.' "'I've been quite interested in it.' "'Billy Boynton told me yesterday that they had searched his schooner. "'It's a wonder they haven't got after us if they're holding up fellows like him. "'Do you think they'll ever get this whiskey gym, Captain?' "'No, they talk too much. "'And they couldn't catch a mudscow with that old side-wheeler of theirs.' "'Guess that's right. "'The foot must have started in here before the Michigan, "'and she's thirty years old if she's a day.' The boys are all talking about it down at the city. I dropped around at the hydrographic office after I saw Billy and found two or three others that had been hauled over. It seems they have stumbled on a pipeline half built under the Detroit River near Wyandotte, and there's been a good deal of excitement. There's capital behind it, you see, 
and a little capital does wonders with those revenue men. Stenzenberger was showing symptoms of readiness to return to his desk, but Henry, who rarely grew reminiscent, was now fairly launched. They can't get an effective revenue system because they make it too easy for a man to get rich. It's like the tax commissioners and the aldermen and the legislators. When you put a man where he can rake off his pile month after month, without there being any way of checking him up, look out for his morals. And where they're all in it together, no one dares squeal. It's a good deal, like the railway conductors. You remember last year when the Northeastern Road laid off all but two or three of its conductors for stealing fares? Well, it wasn't a month afterward that one of the honest ones came to me and hired the Schmidt to carry a $1,200 grand piano up to Milwaukee where he lives. He had reasons of his own for not wanting to ship by rail. No, sir, it wouldn't be hard for me to have sympathy with an honest thief that goes in and runs his chances of getting shot or knocked on the head. That calls for some nerve. But these fellows that put up a bluff as lawmakers and policemen and revenue officers and then steal right and left. Deliver me. Well, boys, I guess I'll have to step back. I'm a busy man, you know. Have another before we go? One minute, Captain, said Dick. There's something I want to talk over with you, if you can spare the time. Stenzenberger sat down again. Henry, whose outbreak against the evils of society had stirred up, apparently, some pet feeling of bitterness, now sat moodily looking at the table. It's about Roke, Cap'n, Dick went on. I had to leave him at Manistee. Why? He drinks too much for me. I couldn't depend on him a minute. He bummed around up there and got himself too shaky to be any use to me. Stenzenberger, with expressionless face, chewed a cigar. What did you do for a mate? Came down without one. Have you found a man yet? No, haven't tried. I thought you might have someone you could suggest. I don't know. You'll want to be starting up to Spencer's place in a day or so. He chewed his cigar thoughtfully for a moment, then dropped his voice. There's a man right here you might be able to use. Do you know McGlory? No. You do, Henry. Yes, he was my mate for a year. Well, said Dick, any man that suited Henry for a year ought to suit me. You'll find him a good, reliable man, responded Henry in an undertone. He has a surly temper, but he knows all about a schooner. Well, if he's anywhere around here now, we could fix it right up. Stenzenberger looked around. The woman had slipped out. Madge, he called. Madge, my dear. She entered as quietly as before. Come in, my dear. You know Captain Smiley, don't you? No, she didn't. That's a fact. He's never been in sample rooms. He sets up to be better than the rest of us. But I say, look out for him. And here's his cousin, young Captain Smiley, the handsomest man on the lakes. Dick blushed at this. Sit down a minute with us. She shook her head and waited for him to come to the point. Where's that man of yours, my dear? Is he anywhere around? What is it you want of him? I want him to know our young man here. I think they're going to like each other. You tell him we want to see him. She hesitated. Then, with a suspicious glance around the group, 
left the room. In a moment, McClory appeared, a short, heavy-set man with high cheekbones, a low sloping forehead, and a curling black mustache. He nodded to Stenzenberger and Henry and glanced at Dick. "'Joe,' said the lumber merchant, "'shake hands with Captain Dick Smiley. "'He's the best sailor between here and Buffalo, "'and the only trouble with him is he can't get a mate good enough for him. "'A man's got to know his business to sail with Dick Smiley. "'Ain't that so, Henry?' "'I guess that's right. "'And Henry tells me you're the man that can do it.' "'This pleasantry had no visible effect on McGlory. "'He was looking Dick over.' I don't know about that, Captain. I promised Madge I'd give up the lake for good. The Captain here, pursued Stenzenberger, is going to start tomorrow or next day for Spencer to take on a load of timber and shingles. His small brown eyes were fixed intently on the saloon keeper as he talked, and I think we'll have to keep him running up there for a good part of the summer. Queer character, that Spencer, he added, addressing Dick. He has lived all his life up there in the pines. They say he was a squatter, never paid a cent for his land. But he has been there so many years now. I guess anyone would have trouble getting him out. He has got an idea that his timber's better than anybody else's. He cuts it all with an old-fashioned vertical saw and stamps his mark on every piece. Why would it be any better? I don't know that it is though he selects it carefully. The main thing is, he sells it dirt cheap. Has to, you know, to stand any show against the big companies. He's so far out of the way, no boats would take the trouble to run around there if he didn't. Well, McGlory, we've got a good thing to offer you. You can drop in here once a week or so, you know, to see how things are running. Come over to the office with us, and we'll settle the terms. Stenzenberger was rising as he spoke. Well, I don't know. I couldn't come over for a few minutes, Captain. How soon could you? About a quarter of an hour. All right. We'll be looking for you. Here, give me half a dozen ten-cent straights while I'm here. McClory walked to the door with them and stood for a moment looking after them. When he turned and pushed back through the swinging inner doors, he found Madge standing by the bar awaiting him, one hand held behind her, the other clenched at her side, her eyes shooting fire. He paused and looked at her without speaking. "'So you're going back to the lake,' she said, everything about her blazing with anger, except her voice. That was still quiet. He was silent. "'Well, why don't you answer me?' "'What's all this fuss about, Madge? I haven't gone yet.' "'Don't try to put me off.' Have you told them you would go back? I haven't told them a thing. I'm going around in a minute to see the captain. We'll talk it over then. And you have forgotten what you promised me? No, I ain't forgot nothing. Look here. There ain't no use of getting stagey about this. I ain't told him I'll do it. I don't believe I will do it. Why should you want to, Joe? Aren't you happy here? Aren't you making more money than you ever did on the lake? Why, of course. Then why not stay here? There's only this about it, he replied, leaning against the bar and speaking in an offhand manner. Stenzenberger offers me the chance to do both. 
I could be in here every few days, see you most as much as I do now in a busy season, and make the extra pay clear. Oh, that's why you've been thinking you might do it. Well, that's the only thing about it that... He was wondering what was in her other hand. You see, I can't afford to get the cap'n down on me. You can't. I should think he would be the one that couldn't afford. Now see here, Madge. He stepped up to her and would have slipped his arm around her waist, but she eluded him. I guess I'll go over and see what he has to offer, and then I'll come back, and you and me can talk it all over and see if we think. If we think, she burst out, do you take me for a fool, Joe McGlory? Do you think for a minute I don't know why you want to go and why you mean to go? Look at that. She produced a photograph of a pretty foolish young woman and read aloud the inscription on the back. To Joe from Estelle. An ugly look came into his eye. I wouldn't get excited about that kiddishness if I was you. So you call it kiddishness, do you? And at your age? Well, so long, Madge. I'll be back in a few minutes. Joe, wait. Don't go off like that. Tell me that don't mean anything. Tell me you aren't ever going to see her again. Sure, there's nothing in it. And you won't see her? Why, of course I won't see her. She ain't within 500 miles of here. I don't know where she is. You'll promise me that? You don't need to holler, Madge. I can hear you. Somebody's likely to be coming in any minute. And what are they going to think? He passed out into the back room, and she followed him. How soon will you be back, Joe? She saw that he was putting on his heavy jacket, heavier than was needed to step over to the lumber office. Just a minute, that's all. And you won't promise them anything? Why, sure I won't. I wouldn't agree to anything before you'd had a look at it. He watched her furtively, and she stood motionless, trembling a little, ready at the slightest signal to spring into his arms. But he reached for his hat and went out. She stood there, still motionless, until his step sounded on the front walk. Then she ran upstairs and knelt at the window that overlooked the yards. She saw him enter the office. A few moments, and the two men who had been with Stensenberger came out and walked away. A half hour, and still Joe was in there with the lumber merchant. An hour, and then finally he appeared, glanced back at the saloon, and walked hurriedly around the corner out of sight. And she knew that he had slipped away from her. The photograph was still in her hand, and now she looked at it again, scornfully, bitterly. A man entered the saloon below, and she did not hear him until he fell to whistling a music-hall tune. At something familiar in the sound, a peculiar expression came over her face, and she threw the picture on the floor and hurried down. When she entered the sample room, her eyes were reckless. The man was young, with the air of the commercial traveler of the better sort. He was seated at one of the tables, smoking a cigarette. His name was William Beveridge, but he passed here by the name of Bedloe. "'Hello, Madge,' he said. "'What's the matter? All alone here?' "'Yes, Mr. Murphy's downtown.' "'And McGlory, where's he?' "'He's out, too.' He looked at her admiringly. Indeed, she was younger and prettier, 
for the odd expression of her eyes. Well, I'm in luck. Why? she asked, coming slowly to the opposite side of the table and leaning on the back of a chair. But in gazing at her, he neglected to reply. By Jove, Madge, he broke out, do you know you're a beauty? She flushed and shook her head. Then she slipped down into the chair and rested her elbows on the table. You're the hardest person to forget I ever knew. I guess you have tried hard enough. No, I couldn't get round lately. I've been too busy. Anyhow, what was the use? If I had thought I stood any show of seeing you, I would have come or broken something. But there was always Murphy or McGlory around. He could not tell her his real object in coming, nor in avoiding the two proprietors who had watched him with suspicion from the first. Do you know this is the first real chance you've ever given me to talk to you? How did I know you wanted to? Oh, come, Madge, you know better than that. How could anybody help wanting to? But, he looked around. Are we all right here? Are we likely to be disturbed? Why, no, not unless a customer comes in. Isn't there another room out back there where we could have a good talk? She shook her head slowly with her eyes fixed on his face, and he, of course, misread the flush on her cheek, the dash of excitement in her eyes, and her low reply, too. We'd better stay here, was almost a caress. He leaned eagerly over the table and said in a voice as low as hers, "'When are you going to let me see you? "'There's no use in my trying to stay away. "'I couldn't ever do it. "'I'm sure to keep on coming until you treat me right "'or send me away, "'and I don't believe that would stop me.' "'Aren't you a little of an Irishman, Mr. Bedloe?' "'Why?' "'She smiled with all a woman's pleasure and conquest. "'Why haven't you told me any of these things before?' How could I? Now, Madge, any minute somebody's likely to come in. I want you to tell me, can you ever get away evenings? Of course I can, if I want to. Tomorrow? Why? There's going to be a dance in the pavilion at St. Paul's Park. Do you ride a wheel? She nodded. It's a first-rate ride over there. There's a moon now, and the roads are fine. Have you ever been there? No. It's out on the north branch, only about a four-mile run from here. We can start out, say, at five o'clock, and take along something to eat. Then, if we don't feel like dancing, we can take a boat and row up the river. She rested her chin on her hands and looked at him with a half-smile. Do you really mean all this, Mr. Bedloe? For reply, he reached over and took both her hands. Will you go? Don't do that, please. Do you know how old I am? I don't care. What do you say? Please don't. I hear someone. No, it's a wagon. I want you to say yes. You, you know what it would mean if, if... Mr. McGlory? Yes, I know. You're not afraid. Her face hardened for an instant at this, and then, as suddenly softened, No, she said, 
I'm not afraid of anything. And you'll go? She nodded. Shall I come here? No, you better not. Where shall we meet? Oh, let me see. Over just beyond the station. It's quiet there. All right, and I'll get a lunch put up. No, it's easier for me to do that. I'll bring something. And now go, please. He rose and slipped round the table toward her. Don't! You must go! And so he went, leaving her to gaze after him with a high color. End of chapter 2